This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Salacious headlines, celebrity gossip, sensational crime stories. Those are what make tabloid journalism a staple of the American media diet. On Monday, CJR contributor Julia Dahl published a story reflecting on her experience at the New York Post, where she worked as a freelancer. It's a thoughtful piece on the human cost of the tabloid reporter's pen and how that may affect the way subjects of stories feel about journalists. Dahl now splits her time between writing novels and reporting for CBS News. CJR's Meg Dalton visited her at her apartment in Brooklyn where they discussed what she learned about journalism from tabloid reporting and also the role of tabloids in the Trump era. So we are in a workshop in Gowanus, Brooklyn. Um, My husband is a knife maker. He makes handmade kitchen knives. So around us are, well, we've got a wall of knives, um, a stroller, because I have a two-year-old son. Can you say hi? Want to give me a high five? No. Sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, And right above us is the F train. So earlier this week, you wrote about your experiences working at the New York Post. And so I'm just curious if you could just tell us, you know, what did you learn about journalism while freelancing there? I learned a lot. I learned, I learned a lot about the city. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about myself. But what I learned about journalism, I think, is that it can be really dangerous to practice journalism from afar. When you're working at the Post, at least the job I was doing, I was like a runner for the city desk. So every morning I would wake up and call in and they would say, go you know, to this home and door knock and ask this question or go to this press conference or whatever. And you know, so every day I was in someone's home or I was on, on someone, in someone's office and really had to look at them face to face. And you know, very often the stories we were doing were crime related, so I was you know, be at the home of the sister of a murder victim or something and, and, you know, really see her pain and then have to sort of interact with her in a way that was human, but that also got what I needed, which was a quote. And that was really complicated. But I also think it was really an important way to gather information, or it was a good way to gather information because it forces you to, you know, sort of acknowledge the humanity of your, your subject. And what I thought was strange when I first started at the Post was I remember being sent to a, a scene of a little boy who had sort of tried to ride his bike behind a garbage can, a garbage truck, like Back to the Future style, and was killed. And I, you know, was on the scene, saw the body, you know, the whole thing, and you know, wrote it up, talked to the driver, talked to all these people, went into my car, and I had my computer with me because it was one of my very first days, and I sort of thought the job was to collect information, write a story. So I go into, you know, I get all the information, I go into my car, write the story, email it to the editor, and they're like, oh, actually, we just need the information. Someone else writes the story, and. I know now that that's how tabloids work, that you have somebody out there gathering information, they call the information into a person at the desk, that person writes it up, somebody else puts a headline on it, that's you know the way it works. But 
there a lot of mistakes can get made in the interim and you know if the person writing the headline is has never met the person who is the subject of the story I feel like there's a, can be a real disconnect there and so I think one of the things I what I learned is that the closer you are to your subject the more accurate you're going to be not just in terms of you know getting the facts right but the emotional core of the, the subject and what's actually important about it. And um, the farther you get away, the more, the less likely it is to really have like kind of the truth we want from our journalists. In your piece for CJR, uh, you also talked a lot about how you had to compromise and you brought up ethics yeah. quite a bit. Right, the, the, the one time that I felt like I was really doing the wrong thing was that when my editor, it was back when Isaiah Thomas was the coach for the New York Knicks, the basketball team, and there was a lot of pressure, I guess, for him to be fired. My editor said, okay, here's what we're going to do. They, I think they had heard that maybe some protesters or some people who had gone to the game and like yelled at Isaiah were ejected from, the, from Madison Square Garden. So they... I got into the office and they said, we're gonna make these, you're gonna make these big signs that say, fire Isaiah, we've got you floor seats. I mean, who knows how much those seats cost. You're gonna go sit at the floor seats and hold up these signs. We're gonna have two in case somebody rips one and see how long, see what happens, see how long it takes for them to kick you out. And you know, immediately I'm like, this is not a story, like this is a stunt. And I knew, I mean, everything, I, everything in me knew that this was the wrong thing to do, but I did it anyway. And I don't know if I, if, you know, this was, I was 30 years old, so I, you know, I can't just plead that I was just out of college or something. And I could, I get, I could have said to my editor, I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Or this, this is not journalism or, or just, I don't want to, but I didn't. I guess I sort of thought that if I didn't do it, I might not have a job. All the people around me were, you know, they paid all this money to like enjoy the game. And I'm like just standing there with the sign and people are screaming at me, and then finally some guy comes over to me and kneels over and he's like, hey, so tell me what you're doing here. And I realized he's a reporter and a photographer, and he had taken my picture, and, and I kind of, I couldn't say who I was, but I also, I sort of said, you know, you don't, you don't want to talk to me. It's, you don't want to talk to me. And I just sort of pushed him off. But then he somehow figured out that I was a reporter, and... I think he published a picture of me. I left after that. I think the editor called and said, like, get out of there, you've been made. And I remember walking out of Madison Square Garden and being like, I should quit. This is, I don't want to do this. During, during your time at the New York Post, you talked a lot about your interactions with everyday people. Can you give us some insight into how <clears throat> those interactions with sources shaped the way those people view journalism as, as an industry? Right. I, I think I told two stories in, in the piece, one about a sex offender that I sort of ambushed in his home, and then one about a young woman who had, I, I think, gotten in a fight outside the courthouse, and she happened to really be related to a politician, and so we sort of ambushed her at her house. But the but the story, one of the stories I didn't tell, which I also think about a lot, is... Um, a story where I think it was a principal up in the Bronx had come to school on like crazy day dressed as a woman and parents complained and it was like a big drama and and so I was sent up there to like interview students and I interviewed a couple students so they were you know these were I think it was middle school so these are like 13 year olds you know and they loved this principal 
And so I'm up there asking them, so what did you think about this? And they were so, this one girl was so mad. She was like, why are you trying to get him in trouble? He is a great principal. And I, and I actually said these words, I will never forget it. I said, I'm just doing my job. And she goes, will you have a shitty job? And I mean, she's a 13-year-old girl, but it's somehow, like, I pushed her too far. She didn't want to, like, talk negatively about this principal who was a positive influence in her life. She, this is now almost 10 years ago. Like, what does she think of reporters now? You know, what did my interaction with her have? What, what, what kind of um, impact did that have on her? Now, would she be more likely to look at a newspaper and see a story she didn't like and say, that they probably just made that up, or they're just drumming up trouble. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't blame her if she did. But kind of one of the reasons why I asked that question was like in this culture of like quote fake news, and in an era where you know the press is defined by the president as quote the enemy of the people. It seems like tabloid journalism has kind of contributed to that narrative. Yeah, I mean. The fake news thing is like something that it's still hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about fake news? Is it actual fake news, like like the you know supposed sex ring in the basement of the ping pong parlor in D.C., or is it just news you don't like, you know, or news that makes your guy look bad? It's astonishing, I think, how quickly that phrase has become something that undermines all news and all media, and it's terrifying because you can now just say if. I don't agree with the story, it's fake news. And nobody, there's no, there are not enough people out there screaming no about it. I do think that our choice of stories and our choice of how we play stories is something we should always be thinking about. And we should be thinking about the consequences, you know, not just for the people we're writing about, um, but for the perception of our industry. I mean, we should, we should do the hard stories. We should do the truth to power stories. We should, you know, when the, when the politician gets, gets drunk and kills somebody or is corrupt or, you know, if the MTA is skimming money. I mean, these are, these are important stories. How have tabloids contributed to this narrative of fake news? I mean, I think it can be easy to call something fake if it's, given to you in a way that seems insincere and seems almost silly. The practice in tabloids to sort of um, sex it up, make it more sensational, make it more splashy, trickles down. And it becomes this, this thing where as journalists, instead of just, you know, here are the facts, ma'am, it's I have to grab you and scream the facts at you and maybe add some colorful words, too. Um, and that turns the news into something different. It, it starts to become a little more like entertainment. So there's been like this tabloidization of the mainstream media in this like new political climate, essentially? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it's also a function of, you know, the internet and just the number of news outlets out there. You know, it used to be ABC, NBC, CBS, the New York Times, your daily paper, or your, you know, your local paper, and now there's, you know, hundreds of places for you to get news, which is great because it allows, you know, places like The Trace to focus just on guns and, you, you know, um, for small, and like DNA info to pick up where with the, the you know, the um, local news stories that maybe the, the, the paper papers aren't, aren't taking. But because there are so many voices in that room, 
feel like there's this, you know, it's like if you're at a party and everybody's talking, you start to talk louder to get people's attention. And in the media, talking louder means maybe a little more sensational, maybe a little more sexy, um, instead of just trying to, you know, do our, you know, do our mission, which is just keep people informed so that people can make decent decisions about their lives and who they vote for and where they're going to live and what they're going to do. Before President Trump became president, you know, he was kind of a, a darling of the yeah, yeah. New York City tabloid scene. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear from you about how New York tabloids, you know, like the Post mm -hmm. included, have kind of uh, shaped the image of Trump. Right. Yeah, I mean, I never wrote any stories about Trump uh, or really any worked on any, um, but definitely, I mean, Donald Trump is a genius at sort of self-promotion, and he was matched perfectly with the New York Post and, and the Daily News um, because he wanted to be in the press, and he was willing to do and say outrageous things to get there, and outrageous things sell newspapers. So it was like this great symbiotic relationship in a way. Um, and even if, you know, Donald Trump seems to think that it, all, no press is bad press. So he was willing to, you know, look bad sometimes in the media. And yet, and, and I guess maybe he's right, you know, I like just seeing his face over and over and over and over again. And, you know, Trump Towers and, and him getting married multiple times and, 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 and even his bankruptcies, the way they were sort of splashed across the paper as if they were really important which certainly before he became president, they weren't. He was just a flashy, you know, kind of crass businessman. There are a lot of those in New York City. Um, but he was a genius at self-promotion, and the newspapers ate it up, and, you know, that helped him become a household name. Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, Pete, I have a serious dilemma. I am in need of a really good book. Well, that's convenient because I have in my hand a new fascinating story of America's pioneering broadcast journalist and global adventurer, Lowell Thomas, in The Voice of America. Tom Brokaw calls Voice of America a lively account of a legendary life. So, Meg, read The Voice of America, new from St. Martin's Press. We're now joined by Peter Stern, a senior reporter at the Freedom of the Press Foundation and the managing editor of the Press Freedom Tracker, which launched on Wednesday. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, thanks so much for giving us a call. Yeah, I, I hope there's not uh, too much background noise. Well, yeah, are you uh, at, down there at Union Station? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the park across the street. So what exactly is the Press Freedom Tracker? So the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker is an online database that is uh, being supported by a coalition of press freedom organizations, including the Freedom of the Press Foundation, the Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, Reporters Without Borders, and other organizations. And the idea is to have a central website where you can comprehensively document all different kinds of press freedom incidents and violations in the United States. We're tracking things like arrests and detentions, uh, stops at the U.S. border, physical attacks on journalists, 
leaked prosecutions, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we're used to hearing about press freedom violations in other countries around the world. What's changed about the situation in America that makes a project like this necessary? So the first thing I should say is that uh, many of the organizations involved in the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, notably the Committee to Protect Journalists and Reporters Without Borders, do very good work documenting press freedom incidents around the world. And they also focus on the U.S., but there's an issue where the standards that they use for other countries don't necessarily apply that well to the United States. So. The Committee to Protect Journalists, for example, tracks the number of journalists who are murdered or imprisoned in different countries around the world. And they do that for the U.S. as well, but, you know, fortunately in the United States, there are not that many journalists who are killed or imprisoned. But we still felt that it was important to take a closer look at the United States and some of the press freedom issues that are going on. And so that means applying a different standard and looking at things like if people are arrested, not necessarily imprisoned, but arrested at a protest and then charged, or if they're physically attacked, maybe they are just shoved or knocked to the ground by police at a protest, or maybe their body slammed by an angry politician, as we saw happened in <laughs> Montana. They're not being killed, but this is still an important thing to document, we feel. And is this something that is increasing the challenges that journalists are facing, whether those are physical challenges, legal challenges, whatever they may be? I mean, I can't say for sure whether that's the case. I mean, part of the problem is that the Press Freedom Tracker, as you mentioned, only launched yesterday. So we don't have that much data to compare it to. I felt that, you know, it would be difficult to go back five years and try to look at all the data and then compare it to the data we've collected this year, I'm wary of making that direct comparison. So what I can say is that I'd say that now we're starting to pay attention to press freedom incidents a lot more. And partly that's because of over the last few years, we've seen a lot of journalists being arrested at protests. Again, I can't say whether it's necessarily more now than it was in the 90s, but certainly more people are aware of it. And I think Twitter has helped with that. We've also seen an increasing number of leak prosecutions. You know, the Obama administration brought the largest number of leak prosecutions of journalist sources of any presidential administration. And now with the rise of Trump, both in the election last year and now that he's president, we've seen a ramping up of very hostile rhetoric towards the press. And I think the combination of all of those things and the fact that none of this data is being collected systematically right now and certainly was in the past made us realize that we want to create a site that allows people to see the scale of the issue and will allow us to, looking forward, document these incidents and then hopefully in a year or two we can draw a conclusion about whether it's getting worse. Right, and CJR is supporting you in this effort and people can go either to CJR or to pressfreedomtracker.us to find out more. All right. Meg is back from Brooklyn, joining me in the studio now. Meg, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. How are the subways? Terrible. As usual. This is the (laughs) summer of our discontent here in New York. Uh, But let's get to the news. So something I've noticed this week and wrote about in our Thursday morning newsletter is this grasping by journalists for the ever-elusive Trump pivot. And the catalyst this time around seems to be the appointment of John Kelly, former four-star general, as chief of staff. 
And I just want to give a few recent headlines to illuminate this uh, issue I'm talking about. These are all things that have appeared in the last couple days. From Politico, Kelly cracks down on West Wing back channels to Trump. The New Yorker, Anthony Scaramucci's ouster may show that John Kelly has the rare ability to rein in Trump. And then, Vanity Fair, will John Kelly save Trump's soul? That last one is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's like the media is like diving headfirst into the John Kelly pool and the narrative surrounding him has just been this like, John Kelly is a savior. Right. I think that narrative you mentioned there is an important thing, though. We've been waiting for a Trump pivot, right, since what, when Paul Manafort was brought on and then the convention was going to change him. And then, well, once he got into office, the weight of the the duty would change the way that he operates and the way that his West Wing operated. And it just hasn't happened. We had a piece way back in the campaign in the midst of it by former colleague Dave Uberti that was just simply called Stop Expecting Trump to Change. And that was written in response to this urge from journalists to look for a pivot, to have this pre-fit narrative that whatever events were happening, they would shove into. And we should note that in all of these articles that are coming out now about Kelly, there are caveats. There are statements saying this sort of thing has been predicted before and Trump hasn't changed the way that he communicates. He hasn't changed the way that he runs a chaotic West Wing. So will John Kelly save Trump's soul? I don't think so. Um, I mean... Trump will be Trump, right? And, you know, despite the fact that Kelly's intentions are good and his background is solid and he kind of he carries himself much differently than the other, you know, cast of cartoons that we have in the Trump administration. Um, It's going to be an uphill battle for him. I, I don't think he can fix the Trump administration, but he could help to. Um, soften the edges? Yeah, he could like, you know, soften the dis- dysfunction that's happening. Right. I do. I think that's fair. And I think reporters are doing a great job reporting on some of those things already. Some of the firings from the National Security Council, some of the changes in the way the West Wings run. But to predict that this is going to cause some big pivot is perhaps a bridge too far. All right. Turning from Washington to New York, the paper of record here in the city, the New York Times, is involved in what Vanity Fair recently called the last great newspaper war. But it's also going through some tough times. Pardon the pun. Uh, So, Meg, what do we mean when we say the Times is facing some difficulties, even as it produces this great run of scoops? Well, there was a great piece in Vanity Fair by Joe Pompeo, I think at the end of June, um, that summarized it really nicely. Uh, It's kind of the first, one of the the, uh, editors that he quoted anonymously uh, said that it was the first time that morale was this low in the last 15 years. And that's really because there's been a huge um, push for buyouts, primarily targeting the copy editing desk. There was a protest about a month ago uh, where members of the copy editing team, as well as those supporting them, basically like the bulk of the newsroom, I don't know, essentially to petition the New York Times management to reconsider. Yeah, and that seems not to have happened. Dean McKay went on the Reader Center, which is the Times' kind of quasi-replacement for the public editor's position, and responded to Reader concerns over those editing changes. What we've seen in the last couple weeks, though, is that it's not only editors whose names we generally don't know, even though they help produce this great paper. There's also a bunch of writers, some of whom have been at the Times for decades. And one of the the names that kind of was shocking last week to see, for me at least, was Michiko Kakatani, Mm, who is the longtime chief book critic there, 
who has produced shelves full of books in my apartment right now just by what she has written in the Sunday Book Review. And so that one hit hard. Uh, was there somebody on that list of names, which, by the way, we should shout out Pointer, who's doing a great job cataloging these the people that have taken the buyouts. But was there somebody on that list that really hit home with you? Oh my God, my heart is breaking because Sonny Kleinfeld is leaving. Yeah. Um, he's one of the most accomplished journalists and like one of my, you know, craft heroes. Um, you know, he's won, a, he's won a Polk Award, the Pulitzer Prize. He just has this like really poetic, lyrical quality to his writing that I'm going to miss. My favorite story of his was the one right after September 11th and the, the Twin Towers fell. Um, and I actually just really want to read yeah, go part it. of it because it's just so lovely. So this is this is an excerpt from the story he wrote on September 12th, 2001. It kept getting worse. The horror arrived in episodic bursts of chilling disbelief, signified first by trembling floors, sharp eruptions, cracked windows. Like, ah, oh, yeah, God. just a master of the craft. He's been there for yeah. decades, basically. And there were other names on this list, Pulitzer Prize winners, um, great Metro reporters, bureau chiefs from Phoenix and Florida. So while The Times is, you know, doing an incredible job following the Washington story, pr- still producing news from around the world, this is, you know, tough to see some of these names go. And so it's sad. Our last thing that we're going to touch on real quick, also sad. We're recording at the end of the week, which means the Anthony Scaramucci exit news is a little bit stale. We don't get to talk about it in depth. But earlier today, Thursday, the New Yorker released audio of his infamous phone call with Ryan Lizza. So instead of us discussing it, we'll let the mooch play himself out. I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own <laughs> I'm not trying to build my own brand off and shrink the president. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Peter Stern and Julia Dahl for giving us some of their time. And as always, thank you, Meg, for being here. Thank you, Pete, for hosting. And thank you, all of our listeners. Please go check out all of the great content we've got at CJR.org. Subscribe to our newsletters. Go on iTunes. Leave us a review here for The Kicker. Tell your friends about it. We appreciate all of it.